The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hello, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me today. The sun was out this morning. I almost didn't recognize it. Kind of nice to see. But it is Valentine's Day, so that's a reason for optimism, right? A reason uh, to be hopeful about things that are happening in our world. A reason to trust romance and buy into that whole thing. And hopefully, hopefully you enjoy the day for what it is. It's not something that's mandatory for most of us. But you should want to do something for your sweetheart if that's something that, uh, you know, if you've got one. So, hey, enjoy the day because you might make somebody smile and there's nothing wrong with that. All right, I've got a little bit of a reason to be optimistic on this day and a couple of things that we're going to talk about. So uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is, of course, guns, because this is, unfortunately, Valentine's Day was marred last year with the Parkland School shooting in which 14 students lost their lives. It's been an interesting year since then, and now there are major moves taking place in Washington and in several states around the country to actually curb access to weapons. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the moves that are being made there, whether or not they've got a chance of passing, but also about the message that it sends about what we value. So we'll talk about that. And also, an announcement yesterday that indeed it looks like the Lee Plaza building finally is going to get restoration work and be turned into affordable housing over on the west side of Detroit. This has been one of the last uh, abandoned buildings. and It's been a real symbol of Detroit's decline, and I'll tell you a little bit more about its history coming up later on the show. But stick with me. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Hey, thanks for checking out the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. A quick reminder, if you like the program, do me a favor. Let other folks know about it. Share it. Tell them what you like about it. Rate the program on both iTunes uh, and anywhere else that you can rate it, even, even on Facebook, whatever. Look up the Craig Folly Show's page on Facebook and put in if you like it or not. This stuff all helps, and it's going to help monetize this in a way that we can keep it going for a long time, which is what we want. I'm not going to get rich doing this, I promise you that. But at the same time, it is nice to be able to... Uh, you know, make a little bit of a living off of this because I have fun and I enjoy it. All right, so it is Valentine's Day today. And for most of us, that means candy, that means dinner, that means romantic evenings, whatever, whatever it means. But for kids in Parkland, Florida, unfortunately, this is the first anniversary of the Parkland school shooting in which 14 students lost their lives. And those students, of course, went on to make uh, a lot of news in the past year, really pushing the boundaries on what young people's activism can lead to in ways that we haven't seen in many, many decades. And it was nice to see so many kids get out there to talk about something that they care about and talk about the fact that we need to be more sensible about how we deal with guns in this country. Now, we're not going to have anything obnoxious. Nobody's going to be going on some gun-grabbing spree. It's just not going to happen. The Supreme Court has ruled very clearly on this over the years. And this is something that I've been wrestling with on this program for a long, long time. What is the best approach? What can we do to actually reduce the incidence of violence in this country, especially firearm-related violence? A reduction in all violence is important. But guns, guns are capable of inflicting a lot more damage a lot more quickly than just about any other type of weapon out there. We know this to be true. The stats don't lie. So what can we do? Well, we've been looking at Congress to do something, 
Everybody talks about, well, we need to fix mental health or we need to have uh, greater background checks or we need to eliminate assault weapons, so-called assault weapons. We need to eliminate clips that uh, hold more than a standard round of, of ammunition. There have been all sorts of different things, getting rid of bump stocks. Nobody has done a damn thing to this point, to this point. For the first time since 2013, major legislation is moving its way through Congress right now as it relates to guns. Now, I'm not suggesting this is going to pass the Senate. It may not. Republicans still hold the Senate. There is some opposition to this on that side. But one of the things that is going on right now is a move by the House of Representatives to actually add real background checks to the law, expand background checks to every gun purchase in the country. Now, let me give you a little bit of information as to what this bill would and would not do. Now, it would require background checks for all gun sales and most gun transfers within the U.S. Now, this is the first bill to make it this far in Congress in in a long, long time. So there was nine hours of debate on the bill yesterday, a 21 to 14 vote to advance it out of committee on Wednesday night. Now it goes to a vote on the House floor where it is expected to pass. Now, the newly Dem- like the Democrats, uh, who, of course, just took back control of the House, have pledged to do this. They said gun control was going to be something that they wanted to do. And this seems like a reasonable thing. Going after this one first is fairly reasonable. It is not highly controversial. In fact, most gun owners are in favor of stronger background checks for purchases of guns. They're talking about eliminating loopholes in places like gun shows and private gun sales, where background checks are going to have to be done for every gun sale in the country. Another part of this, there's another part of this that I think is also very important. A 23 to 15 vote yesterday in committee to advance the bill that closes a loophole in the current background check law that exists that allows a gun purchase to go ahead if that check hasn't been completed within three days. Now, part of that was done. Part of the reason that was done is because there is not one national database of, of stuff that you can get access to very easily. It's not allowed to be computerized. There have been all kinds of hurdles put in the way to make sure that this information is not readily available. And I understand the Second Amendment is explicit. Have a right to bear arms. The Supreme Court has ruled on this and said it is a right. However, if you have committed a crime in the past, that's when your rights can be restricted. This is what this is looking for, making sure that felons are not getting their hands on weapons. This is kind of a big deal. Now, of course, there's going to be all sorts of illegal gun sales, and everybody says, well, if you can't stop that, then you shouldn't stop any. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. Yes, there are always going to be criminals out there, but we still have murder on the books for a reason. Everybody knows you're not supposed to kill somebody else, but people still do it anyway. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be something on the books telling people it's wrong. It's a statement about our moral perspective, our moral point of view on what we value and what we don't. And if we value life as much as we say we do in this country, then just maybe, just maybe we should put something in the law that actually reflects that. Background checks to make sure that violent criminals are not getting their hands on weapons. It's not a bad thing. Or people with known mental health histories, bad mental health histories. We shouldn't have a situation where it applies to somebody who goes into a store, but not somebody who goes into a gun show or a private dealer. That's not fair. If you're going to do background checks, they should be across the board. I applaud Congress for taking this action. I don't know that it's going to make a huge difference in the number of violent crimes we see committed with weapons, uh, with guns. I don't know if it's going to make a difference at all. But again, it sends a message about what we stand for and what we're willing to tolerate and the fact that we're at least going to try, try to do something about this instead of just throwing up our hands and suggesting that this is the way the world works now. I am not willing to accept that. I don't think anybody is. I don't even think most responsible gun owners want this to be the way things are. Nobody wants school shootings. Nobody wants what happened in Las Vegas. 
Nobody wants what happened at Sandy Hook or San Bernardino or anywhere else you can think of. This has happened way too many times. And while this may not stop another massacre, it may have something to do with preventing one, but at least, at least we are trying. We're showing that we actually care. We're showing that we can come up with a solution or try to come up with a solution to this problem. Because when we actually put something in the law that says this matters to us, it sends a message to everybody that, you know what, this isn't the Wild West. We don't want people gunfighting in the streets. We had a three-year-old kid killed on the freeway the other day because some guy got cut off. And his response was to shoot into a car. Says he didn't see the kid, fortunately turned himself in. But what kind of a world do we live in? That our first response is to pick up that gun and react violently. At least by doing something, we're sending a message that, you know what, responsible people can own guns. But at least sends a message that we don't want people to be killed with them. The goal is not. Most people say, well, I have it for sport. I have it for target shooting, whatever. That's great. Unfortunately, too many other people have them for different reasons. And while I'm not suggesting this is going to fix the problem with guns in this country, it probably isn't. It might not even make a big difference. But again, at least it sends a message that we're freaking trying for the first time in a long time. And that we're not going to let all these scare tactics and arguments get in the way of us trying to figure out how to make this place just a little bit safer. Now, it's not just nationally this is happening. And again, this has to go to the, uh, to the Senate here in the U.S. I don't know if the votes are there to pass it. And it's unclear as to whether or not President Trump would support it. But there were five Republicans, five Republicans on that committee that voted with the Democrats on this universal background check bill. There may be enough that you can actually get something done. And it sends a strong message that Washington is indeed listening to us because the voices have been loud. And again, a vast majority of gun owners in this country actually would like to see stronger background checks. They don't want loopholes either because every time some jackhole shoots up a school, they get worried that the reasons that they have their guns for legitimate purposes are going to be threatened. They want to lid on this nonsense too. And if maybe, just maybe, we could prevent the next insane person from getting their hands on a gun, this is something we should do. Now, interestingly enough, I just wanted to say, this is not just something that's happening in Washington. We're starting to see other states making this move as well. New Mexico, New Mexico just passed a law. In fact, they're still working on it. It hasn't been signed yet, but the governor says that uh, the governor says they're going to sign it. Now, what we have here is a bill that deals with not only firearms, but also with school safety. Now, a couple of things that they're doing there. One, they're saying teachers cannot carry firearms at schools. And they're also going to expand child neglect, neglect laws to encompass handguns and handgun storage. So you could be found guilty of child neglect if indeed it seems that you are not taking good care of your handgun and it gets in the hands of a kid. That's something that sends a message to the parents to be safe about your firearms. We talk about responsible firearm ownership all the time. Well, keep the guns out of the hands of your kids. I think that's a good idea. Now, also, they're looking to close a loophole in New Mexico as well that would allow private sales between unlicensed individuals. They're trying to stop that. So you basically have to get your background check done. I don't think that's a problem. Now, people who are opposed to this say that it's somehow going to impinge on people's rights to share weapons. And the bill sponsors say, no, it only applies to sales where money is exchanged. So this is not about gifting. This isn't about something like that or sharing weapons if you're at the range or something like that. But it's just a common sense thing. Keep your guns away from your kids. Do background checks. And let's be honest. Teachers carrying weapons is not a good idea. We've been through this. 
we're never going to solve all violent crime. We're never going to solve all gun crime. But you know what? This doesn't seem to be that out of bounds. Now, meanwhile, in the U.S. Senate, there's going to be another bill that would ban the types of weapons like AR-15s and things like that. We'll see if that goes into effect. I doubt that'll get the votes, but Dianne Feinstein of California is going to reintroduce it again. We'll see if it gets any traction. I'm doubting it. But on the background check issue, it would be nice to see if Congress could come together and come up with something reasonable. The sky is not going to fall if you're a gun owner on this one. And as long as the process is done in a way that actually makes a little bit of sense, then we can do this. We've mastered things like driver's licenses. We've figured out a way to do that. It's not that hard to come up with a database of gun ownership in this country. Heck, we count every citizen with a census every 10 years. Just a thought. You may disagree with me. We've had arguments about this for years. But background checks, if they can prevent one mass shooting, if they can prevent one shooting from taking place in the city of Detroit or Chicago or anywhere else where violence is happening, I'm for it. I know we're not going to take away people's guns. That's not going to happen. The Supreme Court has already ruled that it's not going to happen, and it can happen. You're not going to have an Australia situation. That's just not going to happen. So do not let the fear tactics and the scaremongering that's going to come from the usual places dictate what we decide to do on this. Hopefully, some sanity returns to the gun issue. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this Thursday. And uh, it is Valentine's Day, which is a day for optimism, Right. And I'm really, really optimistic after reading some news this morning that the historic Lee Plaza building on Grand River in Detroit looks like it's going to get new owners and is going to be turned into affordable housing. A little over 100 units in the building will be, uh, it'll be converted into that. This building has been sitting vacant for a long time, and it really is one of the most high-profile vacant buildings in the city of Detroit. Of course, we've thought of the train station for a long time. We've got news on that building, and now the Lee Plaza getting new developers, the Roxbury Group seeking to purchase the building uh, for a pretty reasonable price, a little over $300,000. And again, they will convert it. uh, And given their track record, I have a feeling that they'll do a very, very good job with the Lee Plaza. But joining me right now to talk a little bit more about this building, and it really is iconic in the neighborhood that it's in, is Dan Austin of HistoricDetroit.org. Now, I also want to mention he works for Van Dyke Horn Public Relations. They do represent the Roxbury Group, but I've got Dan on here for different reasons today, not necessarily talk about the structure of the deal or anything like that, but more about the history of this building and the importance of getting it back into productive use. Dan, welcome to the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great to be here, Craig. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, you said you were a little surprised at the news of, of this uh, of this announcement. Uh, the Lee Plaza was one of those buildings. We weren't sure if it was ever going to get redone. Just first off, just as, as somebody who is so into Detroit architecture and so into Detroit history, what does this mean for you to see that somebody, uh, again, with a proven track record, is going to take on this project? Yeah, if you had asked me, heck, five years ago, let alone 10, uh, whether Michigan Central Station and the Lee Plaza would be saved, I think I would have told you that you were nuts. Um, (laughs) But we're getting to the point now where a city that was known around the world for its abandoned skyscrapers, uh, we're now at the point where the only abandoned skyscrapers 
or really the only abandoned notorious buildings that we have left uh, are the Packard plant and then whatever the Illich is on. I mean, like everything else is being redeveloped. Even the buildings that we said that everybody agreed could never be saved. Uh, the Metropolitan was one of them. And then the Lee Plaza, more because of the location, you know, um, there hasn't been a lot of development of this magnitude at Lawton and West Boulevard. Um, but now this is showing that Detroit's uh, economic turnaround and real estate turnarounds are moving at such a, a good clip that now the unthinkable uh, is possible. Well, and, and let's talk about the history of this building, because at one time, this was a very Tony address in the city of Detroit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much one of the premier apartment hotels, they call them. This is an idea of it's an apartment with all the amenities of a hotel. So you could get room service. You could send, you had a, a door within your door where you could put your clothes out and then they'd come pick it up and dry clean it, that kind of stuff. Very Tony. Um, this was the idea of Ralph Lee. He is the Lee in Lee Plaza. And he was probably Detroit's top real estate operator in the uh, late 20s and early 30s. You know, the he had dozens of hotels and apartments all over, and the Lee Plaza was going to be the pinnacle of his real estate empire. He wanted to bring a piece of uh, Fifth Avenue um, you know, to Detroit, and this is a place where you know, he was dropping you know, what would be the equivalent of $10,000 on a, a single chair to outfit this place. It was decked to the nines with all sorts of crazy plaster work done by Corrado Parducci, so he, the best of the best. And um, yeah, just an incredible building. But again, its location um, then was was kind of ahead of the curve. You know, you had General Motors down the boulevard, but when this building opened, the Fisher Building wasn't built yet. So it was kind of out in the country a little bit. Well, and, you know, it became famous again, I, I want to say sometime around uh, the turn of the le- this current century, about 2000, 2001, uh, when we actually had developers from Chicago who had come to strip the lion heads off of the building, some of the decorative features off of the Lee Plaza, which had been vacant for quite some time at that point. Uh, and and really, I want to say, Dan, in a way, it helped rejuvenate people's interest in preservation in the city. This was a bridge too far, right? This wasn't just somebody stealing copper out of a house or something like that. They were stealing our architectural gems to put in other cities. And I think that sort of got people's hackles up a little bit. And I, I, am I overstating its importance in terms of where that led the debate when it comes to the preservation movement here in Detroit? Yeah, I think that you're onto something there. I mean, just for the record, I would say that it wasn't necessarily the Chicago developers who came and stripped it. Some white collar scrappers stole them and then sold them to the developers, at least. Um, they never got a conviction on it. But um, I think that you're, you're dead on. The, the Lee was probably the most, um, I mean, when you're driving by an abandoned building, you don't see the inside of it. You might not know the scrapping that's going on inside, right? This was high profile, gorgeous art deco building in a pretty, just a couple blocks away from Hitsville where these thieves were so brazen, they were going and stealing these giant terracotta lion heads. And then Chicago was, was, you know, plundering the grades, robbing the grades. Um, and, and this stuff was so beautiful, uh, but Detroit didn't care about it. You know, it's like that, that idea, um, you know, but at the same time, I don't know whether the, I would say this building 
galvanized the preservation movement. I think it certainly got a lot of people up in arms. But you know, even in 2000, 2001, Detroit's fortunes were still kind of bleak. You know, there's there, there weren't any hopes of these buildings ever coming back alive. I mean, this was before they tore down the Statler Hotel. It was before they tore down the Lafayette building. Things were still going downhill for Detroit. I think it was embarrassing. I think it was outrageous and people were angry about it. Um, but I don't think that we really started seeing the modern day preservation movement, if you will, the building huggers uh, coming out of the woodwork until the Madison Lennox. Yes. For me, was the big one that um, so outrageous where, you know, the building then owned by the Illiches, they said they couldn't tear it down. They just showed up and tore it down anyway. <laughs> you know. I remember I remember sending I was uh, I was hosting morning edition at the time and I remember sending my board op out with a recorder. I said, go down there and see what the heck is happening at about seven o'clock in the morning because we got word that they were tearing down the Madison Lennox. Um, you know, that, of course, the old Little Harry's being torn down uh, in the middle of the night was another yeah. one. Uh, we've got a couple of churches that have gone down that way. Uh, just to looking looking ahead, I can't imagine that happening again in this community, uh, given how much faith people have and, 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 and I think new appreciation for the gems that we do have when it comes to architecture here in the city. Uh, Lee Plaza is one of those buildings that, if this one can be saved, there's hope for a whole lot of other stuff, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I think the only reason this building hasn't been saved yet was because of, of where it was located. But we're seeing a lot of development in a new center. North End prices are jumping. LaSalle Gardens is starting to turn around um, so that the tide is changing. You know, I know that there's been a lot of um, discussion, a lot of it angry about how all of the Development has been focused on the 7.2, you know, downtown Midtown. But, you know, that rising tide lifts all ships thing. I think we're starting to finally see that in some of the neighborhoods. And this, if the Herman Kiefer project right up uh, the lodge a little ways, just north of the Lee Plaza, that that happens. We're starting to see the neighborhoods start to profit um, or benefit, I should say, from the resurgence downtown in, in Midtown. The Strategic Neighborhood Fund that uh, the mayor is working on, same idea where investment in the neighborhoods. It's just amazing to see as a you know, longtime Detroiter. I, I, I'm pumped. Yeah, well, gift I can ask for. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that it's being made into affordable housing is a huge part of this too. I mean, because it would have been easy to try to restore that, that building and, and make it what it once was in terms of, you know, this very well-to-do place. But the fact is there needs to be more affordable housing with decent proximity to downtown and, and midtown. Uh, this needs to happen. It, it seems like this is the right way to approach it um, by, by making uh, this an affordable project. Yeah, I should say to, to clarify, the plan as of now is half affordable, at least at sure. least half affordable. Um, Which at, is at, more at, than the city mandates on most projects. Oh yeah, twice as much. Um, but the the at the end of the day, you know, this is, it still costs as much to redevelop a building for affordable housing as it, as it does market rate. You know, the the cost of a of a piece of drywall is does not differentiate where you know where it's going. Um, so the fact that the commitment here of half, at least half affordable is, is great to see. And again, as you noted at the beginning of the program, I do represent Roxbury, but, uh, this isn't their first foray into affordable housing. You know, they, they, uh, kept the, what was then the industrial bank building or the industrial Stevens 
apartments downtown now called the industrial, I'm sorry, the Camper Stevens, um, as low-income senior housing, you know, in the heart of downtown on Washington Boulevard. Um, it, it's good to see developers realize that it's not all about chasing the highest rent, you know, amount they can get, that Detroit needs to have places for everybody, uh, and especially those who have been here. So this neighborhood, um, you know, I think it's poised for, for even better things, and it's proximity to LaSalle Gardens. It's right next to uh, what was Northwestern High. Um, you know, the, the, the North End development in Virginia Park, they're seeing a lot of houses starting to uh, get fixed up and housing prices up there increase. So it's, it's like you feel this momentum. Uh, you know, I, I, I get the, the criticism that people have about all of the investment being focused on the 7.2. I mean, I live as far west and still be in the city of Detroit as uh, you can get. So I, I'm not seeing that stuff in my neighborhood either. But at the same time, you needed to start from a, a, a position of strength and in that core. And I think this is another example of that um, radiating out into the neighborhoods. And hopefully we see a heck of a lot more of this because we have 139 square miles. Um, if the trade's going to succeed, you know, all of the action can't be happening in just seven of those. Well, it is important to point out that the deal will not be completed until city council approves it. Um, and that likely is going to happen sometime in the next few weeks. But uh, and there will be a lot of discussion. But I have not been in uh, the Lee Plaza before. Have you ever been inside the building? Yeah. Um, What's its condition? Well, uh, the last time I was in that building, it's probably been about five years. I was in there with uh, Leo Phillips, who was one of the guys who saved the Fort Shelby downtown. Uh, and while we were in that building, the scrappers were in there harvesting the I-beams, steel I-beams out of the elevator shafts. Um, so it's in pretty rough shape, Craig. You know, um, a lot of the architectural details, if they're stealing them from the outside, you better believe that they stole them from the inside, too. Uh, the windows were gone, so lots of water. And um, one of the, the challenges in preservation in Detroit, one of the many, is with the freeze-thaw cycles, four seasons of Michigan weather, um, you get water, uh, snow and things building up, and then it melts and it seeps into the walls, and then it freezes and it pulls uh, the brick away. I mean, it's going to take a lot of money. You know, we're, we're talking at least $50 million is the amount that the, that the developers had thrown out there. It could be more once they get in there and they start working. And I think that's one of the reasons why the plan is for at least half affordable because at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what the total cost of redoing this building is going to be until we start rolling up our sleeves and getting in there. Well, if, if you have any doubt though, that this is a company that can handle this, I mean, just look at the condition of the metropolitan, uh, which yeah. just reopened, which we were both at to celebrate that not too long ago. Uh, and some of the other projects they've taken on the David Whitney and uh, they've had a lot of success and uh, I can't think of a better developer to actually do something with it. There won't be any drop ceilings in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I speak from a, a preservationist and, and historian standpoint, not as them, my clients, if anybody can do this and do it right, it's going to be these guys. I mean, the metropolitan building closed in 1977. It closed before I was born. <laughs> the building that everybody has said could not be saved. The city, Dan Gilbert looked at it. Gilbert's done amazing things in terms of saving buildings and reopening buildings downtown. He wouldn't touch it. And now, uh, as of last month, the Element Hotel uh, is open in that building. Um, I mean, it's just you never thought that you'd see this stuff happen. And then they lovingly went and recreated some of the corbels that had been stolen or had rotted. Um, 
you know, re recreated the plaster, the egg and dart that is in the Great Hall. I mean, these guys really care about these places. The David Whitney building is, you know, before it was renovated, I've said it's my favorite interior in the city of Detroit. Uh, I know that I work in the Fisher. It's gorgeous. The Guardian building is obviously incredible Fox. But there's something about that Daniel Burnham and company designed interior that is just so classically, mind-blowingly beautiful. Um, not only did Roxbury fix that up, but they also restored the original, uh, the exterior to its original appearance because it had been modernized in the 50s. And, and they went to the, not just restoring the uh, the interior, but the exterior too. So I, I'm pretty excited to see what they come up with for the Lee. Well, Dan Austin, we certainly appreciate it. And and for me, I, I just know that uh, it makes you happy knowing that you're going to be able to look into some of these buildings and not just at the old postcard collection that you have to see what these places were like. Yeah, I do have a couple postcards on historicdetroit.org that show the original interior and grandeur of the Lee Plaza. Uh, we'll see, you know, what, what they can do, what can be salvaged. I would bet, knowing Roxbury, that they're going to save a good chunk of, of the original opulence. And, you know, if you Google um, Lee Plaza, you'll find tons of pictures of the, the infamous ballroom with a piano in it. Um, you know, it's in my first book, Lost Detroit, um, is guilty of showcasing some of that stuff. But a lot of that original grandeur remains because the one thing I will mention about the Lee that was so sad and frustrating about its abandonment is that when it joined the National Register in the early 80s, it joined it mostly because it had its original 1927 grandeur. It had never been modernized. Unlike no fluorescent bulbs, no drop ceilings, it was still intact. And then when the City Housing Commission closed it in 1997, it not only evicted a bunch of senior citizens, I mean, maybe they relocated them, but it uprooted them. Uh, it also threw out, you know, this intact gem, this, this Art Deco gem to the, to the vultures, to the wolves, to rip apart. Um, and so it was a loss on many, many, many levels. So now at least the city, instead of tearing it down, is trying to right one of its past wrongs and put it in the hands of somebody who will hopefully restore it to at least, you know, resemble the grandeur that we lost back in the 90s. Well, as I said at the beginning, a day of optimism here on Valentine's Day. Some good news for the city of Detroit. Dan Austin, we certainly do appreciate it. Your website is historicdetroit.org. Of course, you've written some wonderful books about Detroit architecture and Detroit history. Uh, we appreciate you being with us on the program today, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Greg. And this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Appreciate having you with me. A reminder, tomorrow we will be live at the Buell Bar in downtown Detroit for the Friday Follies. Still working on the panelists for tomorrow's show, but I'll have some funny people. I promise you that. And there's no shortage of stuff to make fun of this week. That's for sure. Thanks for listening today. We'll talk again tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.